Welcome to the Yield Podcast. I am Brooke Payne, your host. Together, we are going to create passive income, organically grow your side hustle, meanwhile, being completely submitted to God's leadership throughout the process, because that is how we exponentially grow. I have Whitney Chafin with me. I'm so jacked. She is one of my favorite people. She's crushing it in real estate. She's also a crazy philanthropist and has a huge heart. You guys are going to love her. So before we jump into it, Whit, I'm just going to pray real quick. Is there anything specific? I guess we'll just pray over all the new doors that are opening up for you. Yes, that would be that would be very appreciative. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, God, we thank you that you're here, that you are so evident in our lives. And we just thank you that you are um, opening up new doors for Whitney, that you're moving and shaking things, you're rearranging it, even when it's uncomfortable. We just trust you. We love you. um, And just thank you for anyone listening right now that um, hearts would be open, walls would come down, and uh, they'd be able to just receive all the goodness that you're pouring out of Whitney. So, yes. Amen. Amen. Awesome, dude. All right. Well, let's, um, I mean, just tell us a little bit about you. I gave a quick intro, but tell us a little bit about Whitney. So my name is Whitney Chafin. I'm 29 years old. I live in South Florida. It's not a sunny day today. It's actually pretty gray as I look out my window, but I live in South Florida. I am from originally born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I was raised in Ohio and Uh, By profession, I guess I'm a professional speaker and a real estate investor, but yeah, I'm a philanthropist. I I believe in helping people and that's really everything I'm about is about providing second chances for people and really just doing anything I can to make the world a better place. Yeah. And I met Whitney um, after several people told me, you and Whitney should be friends. Her dad is actually my mentor, a real estate investor, and he's epic. Actually. the whole family is just, you guys are amazing. Um, but then after several people had said, oh, you guys, have you met Whitney yet? Um, and then we actually met for the first time when you were speaking on it, one of the events I was working. Yeah. So, so it's just, it's been fun. People for a while have been like, oh, you got to meet Whitney. So um, your reputation definitely precedes you. So I like, I like people to know a little bit about the background. Um Tell us a little bit about how you got into real estate investing, like the journey of, you know, you weren't like born into money. It wasn't something you just like got handed. And I love that part of your story. So um, I grew up, uh, I wouldn't say poor, but I wouldn't say wealthy by any means. Uh, I grew up in this little tiny house in East Liverpool, Ohio. It had two bedrooms and my dad made the top floor, it was a three floor home. The top floor was a tanning salon and the basement was a gym. And we lived on the main floor that consisted of two bedrooms, one bathroom and a kitchen. The living room wasn't even really, I mean, it was a room, but it wasn't very big. And so um, my brother and I remember we shared a bedroom with DJ equipment because my dad was also a DJ. So he's very hardworking, had a ton of jobs. Uh, we're living in this house and I for as long as I can remember, I've always had two homes because my parents were always working on another one with the intent to make it like a rental property. So my parents had properties when I was growing up. Uh, We lived in two homes. We would call one the little house and one the big house. My parents eventually bought a commercial building and that was like the first big project, although my dad had some rental properties before that. And um, the commercial building ended up becoming a professional tanning salon 
a gym, a massage therapy center, a wellness center, basically. And my parents owned that for 30 years. But um, I grew up kind of always in that entrepreneurial mindset. I never knew my parents to have a job. I knew they worked hard, but I mean, every everything they did was really like built with their bare hands. My dad did work in a plastic plant for many years, which was, I think, like the bread and butter of his financials. But my mom was always kind of holding down the fort. <clears throat> so uh, I grew up kind of in that that business mindset. And I grew up in a very poor town. Um, I think the average income might be 30000 a year. I mean, not to quote me, but it's, it's not a whole lot. Uh, my first job out of college, I was offered $18,000 a year. So that just kind of puts things into perspective. Not a whole lot of money there. Um, and when I was probably about 11 years old, my parents went to a real estate workshop and my dad had been investing for many years. I mean, he, his first property that he ever bought, um, was with creative financing where he was basically paying 200 bucks a month to rent or to own the property that we had lived in. So he was always doing things creatively, but just not really at the the high level. I think that many people dream of. So he goes to this real estate workshop and enrolls in their trainings and, before you know it, my parents, within a very short amount of time, they become multimillionaires through real estate investing. And so that changed my life completely because I knew of my parents, you know, just always working really hard to where my brother and I were a part of the work. I mean, we were working on properties when I was a kid. I used to wear that itchy mask and we would um, rip up fiberglass and just a bunch of stuff when I was a kid that I remember. And I had terrible memories of real estate. I mean, good memories of being with my family, but bad memories of people trashing our properties of my dad having to wake up in the middle of the night to fix freezing pipes and just stuff that I didn't enjoy. So, um, when my parents kind of became wealthy, we didn't even know what was going on. Like we were, we were living in our home and I was babysitting for this family and this home that we, that I was babysitting at was this beautiful 6,000 square foot home at the end of this cul-de-sac with a tennis court in the back. And, um, it was three stories, like a dream house that my mom had always dreamed of. Well, I didn't know that the people I was babysitting for my dad, the reason I was babysitting is because my dad was negotiating to buy the property to live in. So it was my mom's dream house that she had always dreamed of. And we didn't know that that's what she, my dad was doing with all the, the money that he had made. So long story short, uh, we move into this beautiful home when I was about 12, 12 and a half years old. And my brother and I went to school one day and there was a newspaper clipping that said my dad had bought like 60 properties in the county or something like that. And we didn't even know, like we were <laughs> cool. And my brother was the guy that wore, you know, like Walmart sweatpants and a random colored t-shirt, tennis shoes with Velcro. Like we were not wealthy by any means and we never acted that way. So my brother's sitting in class, kind of in the back, very shy and reserved. And some kid turns around and tells my brother, um, yo, did you know that your parents are like buying the entire town? And my brother had no idea. So he goes home from school and says, dad, are we millionaires? Like we didn't even know, totally oblivious to it. So until we moved into that house, I don't think things really hit us. Then when we moved in there, um, life didn't really change in terms of like the, the way that we acted or anything like that. It's just that we were in a different caliber now. And my dad was constantly traveling. He was at that point working for the company that had changed his life. And, um, you know, did a lot of mentoring, like he had mentored you, started teaching classes. And so I knew about that world, but my memories were still of people trashing properties. So I had no desire to do that. I wanted to uh, go to college. I really wanted to be on TV and uh, I wanted to be an entertainment news reporter. So that's kind of what I did. I, I went to Kent State University in Kent, Ohio, and I did major in broadcast journalism. 
Um, but while I was at Kent, I had been dating a, a kid who was training. He was going to college for football, basically. That was his major. When you would say, what are you majoring in? He would say football. And he had a full ride scholarship. And I dated him uh, about six years. So my senior year of high school and all through college in one year out of the NFL or out of out of college where he went to the NFL. And it was then that I learned I did not want to be in TV. I liked it. I liked what what it would do for your ego and to be able to to help people. And I, I feel like I'm good on camera. However, I did not get pleasure in interviewing people about their problems. Like I, I feel like there's a, a sense of privacy that now, especially with the way the world is, that is invaded no matter what you do. And I did not like that. Not only that, but for the amount of money and the amount of time that you'd have to put into becoming that person in someone that I don't want to be. Like I, I'm not a surface-based person. I feel like I'm very full of substance. And I feel like when you're in that TV world, and it's not to discredit anybody who's in TV, because I have a lot of friends who are, but for the the space that I wanted to be in with entertainment and celebrities and all of that, it just became very fake to me and very like surface driven. And it, it almost gave me like an internal conflict. Like I didn't feel like I was serving a higher purpose. So uh, long story short, I lived in LA. I did work in TV. It was a great experience, but I was looking at the people around me in TV who were very famous and who were doing well. And I thought to myself, I don't want to be in my mid forties and still not where I want to be. Not to mention, I don't want to have my children raised by a nanny or raised by somebody who they don't have a relationship with. And that really hit me. And when that happened, I was living in LA, but simultaneously, the the person that I had spent six years of my life with, we'd broken up. Uh, I had a, a family member pass away. Uh, another family member passed away. Um, and I had a uh, my best friend, he died of an overdose, a drug overdose, an unintentional accidental drug overdose, I want to say. So when that happened, I went into a very deep depression, very deep. Like my parents thought I was potentially suicidal and I wasn't, but I think because I wasn't living near them, they didn't really know the depth of the depression I was experiencing. So um, after living in LA, I didn't want to go back to Ohio because there was not really anything there to offer me. And I didn't want that, that quality of life. I wanted something more in a more uplifting place. And where I grew up, it's very gray. Um, like literally the, the skies are gray probably 300 days out of the year. The nearest steakhouse is probably 45 minutes away. Like there's not a whole lot there, or at least there wasn't at the time when I was there. So um, I moved to South Florida because uh, Florida is where I had, I had spent time before I went to LA. So my parents had a home here in Florida. And when I came here to Florida, I uh, took any job that would get me out of uh, LA, anything, because I, I just needed to get back to my roots. And at the time, I had so much credit card debt. I had student loans. Like I could barely afford to do anything. I had to call all my credit card companies and all my student loan providers and ask them if they could do anything for me. I remember being on the phone with one of my credit cards where the interest rate was 29% and I was crying on the phone because I just lost my grandfather and I didn't have enough room on my credit card to book a flight to get home for his funeral. And so they actually increased my limit given the fact that I had terrible credit just so I could book a flight to get home. So it was it was a really tough time and I um I speak about it a little bit on the road but I don't think we ever go in depth on like what I was actually going through and when I moved to South Florida, the first job that I could get was being a administrative assistant at a car dealership. And I took it. I said, I'll take anything I can. Because I had a college degree, they started paying me $13 an hour. So it was above what, what most people would make when they started there. And so 
part of my duties were to basically like answer the phone and take notes and, and, uh, do some administrative stuff. And, uh, shortly after going there, I got promoted to the personal assistant, to the owner, the general manager and president, because his, his personal assistant had quit during the time that I was there. So I instantly kind of got bumped and moved into that position within three months. They increased my pay from $13 an hour to $18 an hour, which is more money than I had ever made, uh, being out of college. So, I started working at this dealership and quickly the person who was in charge of the marketing, he got fired. So now we had nobody doing anything with marketing or TV. You had nobody tending to the owner and general manager and president who, by the way, happened to be completely blind. Like he literally cannot see, has no usable vision whatsoever. So I felt like that was God in my life, just opening doors, but at the same time rewarding me for all the stuff that I had been kind of going through and stepping up to the plate. Cause I'm not good when it comes to like helping people who have disability or something. I mean, I'm good at, in terms of the heart, but physically, like, I don't know what to do. I don't know if there's a, a certain way that you're supposed to approach someone who's blind or anything like that. So I had to step into that role and learn that. And it was totally life-changing. It totally had me, had me see the world in a completely different light. And one thing that my, my boss had done because he did not have usable vision, he, he, his way of advertising was not traditional. So he didn't want to do just newspaper ads and social media and TV. He wanted to actually do grassroots advertising and be out in the community. So when I started working there, what he would do is he would sponsor nonprofit events, but because he could not see, he didn't know what was a good nonprofit versus what was potentially not. So my role became basically the, the spokesperson of the company. And we were working originally with about six nonprofit organizations by the time I had finished working there four years later, we grew that six nonprofits to more than 55. We were actually up to 67 nonprofits to where we would, as like Lincoln or Chrysler or Dodge, we would sponsor all of these nonprofit events, give them like $20,000 for a series of events that they were doing. And instead of putting our ads in the newspaper, we would have our ads on banners and put cars on display and do a bunch of like philanthropy type and grassroots type advertising. So um, what that did for me simultaneously is it got me out of my depression and I had no idea that it would do that. But what I was able to do is basically be the face of our, our company, our, our dealership in the community for all these people who needed help. And, um, I kind of became that girl, that, that nonprofit girl that anytime anybody needed money, they would call us. And so it was helping us because we were getting our name out there, but it was helping me overcome my depression and it was helping the nonprofits by being able to, to fund, you know, um, all their, their beliefs and all the things that they wanted to, to accomplish. So long story short with that, I, because of all the philanthropy and the things I was doing, I was nominated to compete in the Miss Florida USA pageant because I had been basically doing all the things that that a beauty pageant queen was supposed to be doing with giving back, but I just didn't really receive a title for it. So someone from uh, one of the nonprofits nominated me. And in order to uh, compete in the Miss Florida USA pageant, you have to actually qualify. So you can't just pay a fee and go do it like many other states. You actually have to win a preliminary pageant before you can do that. So I was nominated and my boss was like, yes, you need to do this because you are on our TV commercials. Like this would be great for just your own marketing, your own image, but also you deserve it. So I started training in October. It was actually October 31st, Halloween um, of 2014. I started training for the Miss Florida USA pageant, but I had to win a preliminary pageant. So I entered the first pageant that I knew 
in 2015 that was the Miss Art Deco pageant, which basically represented all of the art district in South Beach, Miami. So where all the Art Deco real estate buildings are, all the historic district, I felt like that was really because real estate's my background. I didn't know at the time, but I said, oh, this will make sense for me because I'm into the arts. I'm into to historic buildings. That's very cool. So um, I started training for this pageant and I lost 17 pounds. I stopped drinking alcohol. I stopped eating bad. That was October 31st of 2014. I made that commitment. And so my pageant was in January, January 11th, um, 2015, which was the day my grandmother had passed away three years before that. And I won, I won my preliminary pageant. And I had all these people kind of started following me because I was touting everything I was doing on social media before it became a thing. So people, some people were like, this girl's crazy. She's weird. You know, she's um, promoting herself. Nobody cares. Well, I had lost 17 pounds in a matter of 10 weeks or eight weeks or whatever it was. I won the pageant. And when that happened, people were like, oh my gosh, she actually won. Like, I'm going to start following this girl. So people started following me and were, were like being a part of what I was doing to where I got sponsorships for Miss Florida from national companies like Chobani Yogurt sponsored me. Um, Rashad Evans, UFC fighter, he trained with me to compete for Miss Florida. So all these cool things were happening. And at that same time, my website, which is now uh, kind of a personal blog, but it's WhitneyChafin.com. It became kind of a self-help motivational out outlet during all of that time. So all my depression and things I was feeling, I was venting on Facebook originally. And some people on Facebook, they're like, I don't want to hear this stuff your post is too long. So I created my own website. And with that, my first post I ever wrote was about um, my ex-boyfriend who is now a professional athlete. And it got like 2,500 views in less than 24 hours. So Google started placing ads on my website. So then I was being paid by Google while I was doing all this stuff on my website. Um, and then long story short from there, I competed in the Miss Florida pageant. I did not win but I was projected to be in the top 10, which I thought was pretty cool considering I was not a pageant girl and had never been in that world. And shortly after that, the dealership I had worked at, the boss decided to sell it. And when he did that, that left me on the fence of a job. And so I thought I could go back in TV. I could work in the dealership, but take a pay cut and be basically a car saleswoman, not the TV person and not the, the marketing girl. They wanted to change a lot of the nonprofit work we were doing. And it did not feel fulfilling to me at all. So at that point, I decided to kind of follow my parents' path and learn about real estate. And that's where I am today. So to kind of go back, okay, first off, what is a day in the life with you now? So every day is different. Um, like being today, today's a Tuesday. It's a travel day. So usually I would be catching a flight. But because I'm doing an event in Florida, I'm driving. And because I'm speaking and I don't have to actually set up the ballroom for our event, I won't be leaving probably till late tonight because I like to spend time with my cats. Um, but any day, I mean, like a typical travel day would be where I, I wake up and I meditate, you know, drink some tea or coffee, pray, go get on the road and do what I have to do. My entire plane ride, I'll either be listening to um, something that has to do with recovery on a podcast or... I'll do like something uplifting. I love rap music, but I rarely listen to it. Like other than when I'm with other people or driving to the gym, usually what I have playing in my headphones or in my car is something uplifting because I've learned that even though I've overcome depression at any point in time, you can have triggers where it takes you back into that. And if you're not constantly doing stuff to dissipate that and to kind of keep it from coming in, it can easily creep back in. So every day I have to do something 
that is uplifting, that's self-healing to be able to, to get through the day. And so on a travel day, that's what it consists of. And then when I get to where I'm at, I'll, I'll go eat something and be in my hotel room for the rest of the night and then speak for three or four days. And then usually when I get back from an event, my Sunday is spent doing nothing. I will sleep if it's a red eye. Um, I try to go to church as much as I can, but even if I can't get to church, I do have a meditation room in my uh, place where I live. And so I, I take hours sitting in there and whether I'm reading if I'm talking to God, if I'm just praying, if I'm meditating, if I'm just listening to stuff, drinking my tea, my cats will be in there with me. I spend a lot of time doing that. And then work-wise, what I have going on right now is um, when it comes to real estate, I really like to use real estate to help people. So the first property I ever had was a recovery home with the love of my life. We had that property together and uh, we housed men in drug and alcohol recovery. And we did that for um, a long time, but they changed the laws for recovery homes in the state of Florida. So that's another thing that that kind of was an obstacle in our life because um, the love of my life, he's five years sober. So when I met him, he was only a year and a half sober. And so with the with the recovery home, whenever they changed the laws, they they put some legal ramifications and people got arrested and it was it was challenging and it was a very difficult time in uh, his life, but it was also a difficult time in my life because I had never been there for somebody in early recovery. I didn't know the process of what that could actually do to somebody. So, um, when they changed the laws for the the house here in, in Florida, we had to basically stop helping people. We weren't, our house just sat empty for several months because legally we could not operate. So, um, long story short with that, we sold the home and now what I'm focusing on is people coming out of prison. So, Right now, I have a ton of stuff going on with work, but it, it goes in waves. There are some days where I have nothing for, for months, and then it comes back where there's like nothing but meetings scheduled for, for so many days. And a lot of what I do is volunteer work, and um, with like recovery, I might have a phone call or a meeting or um, just anything that has to do with either reentry coming back from, from prison into society or recovery where you're dealing with individuals or my own recovery of going to meetings and uh, just doing my own kind of steps to, to get better. So that's kind of a daily thing. Every day is different, but when it comes to work, I have to balance things. Um, I'm a Taurus in terms of Zodiac signs. So I tend to take on a lot and then I get super lazy for a certain period of time. So I have to really take my life in waves. And I would say every every day is different, but it goes week by week. So one week I might be super chill and just take that entire week to, to really be for myself. And then the next week might be like heavy where it's every day there's stuff going on. Wow. And I guess part of the premise of like, we're calling this the yield podcast, right? So part of it is learning that balance because I see... I guess the problem I'm trying to solve in, you know, this millennial entrepreneurial kind of world of, you know, people that don't want to just work for 40 years and then, you know, retire when they're too old to even enjoy it. And so the goal is to help people in between that. Like I'm probably the, I don't know if I'm the opposite, but I'm, you know, I'll just work until I crash. But then even when I crash, I'll still work until I'm just like insane. Um, and so I'm learning the whole yielding thing has a lot to do with rest. So I love what you're saying about, you know, like you're meditating, you're taking time to like your, your travel days, you're spacing out and you're just focusing on you. Um, I guess what's your advice for someone 
you kind of already laced it in there in, yeah. in ways, but what's your advice or how did you get to that point where you're like, I have to do this on a regular basis? Like how long have you been meditating or, or when did that start? Well, that's the other thing too, just to kind of touch on what you're saying. Like I worked really, really hard from age 22 to 28 where it was like grind, grind, grind. I remember times where I would be working at the dealership until six o'clock at night. And then I would drive to Miami and work because I was doing some some promotion stuff for people. I would drive to Miami, which was an hour and a half drive from where I was working. Drive to Miami. I would spend from 8 p.m. until 5 a.m. the next morning in Miami promoting and working with people and would drive straight from Miami back to work on no sleep. I did that for, for years because I was in this hustle grind mode. When I was working at the dealership, I also had other streams of income where I was babysitting. I was working at a gym on the weekends. I was doing whatever I could to make ends meet. So there was a time period where it was nothing but hustle, but everyone used to tell me you're going to burn the, the, would I forget the saying, you're going to burn the the bridge at both ends, or you're going to, you're going to burn the candlestick at both ends, meaning like you're going to run out of energy and fuel eventually. And it's true. But if I never would have worked so hard for those four years, there's no way I'd be in the position that I'm in now where I'm actually traveling the country speaking about my experiences. And it's like, if you don't do that, if you don't put that work and that effort in, you're never going to have a story to tell. But at that same time, it depends on your mental health. Because for me, my, my working and my diving into the nonprofits was how I got out of the depression. So I, I used it almost probably not the healthiest way, but I used it as an escape but with that, um, solitude is so important. And I was just having a conversation with my friend Shannon about this the other day, that when people want to grow and they want to elevate, but nobody's willing to be alone, people are so codependent in, in this world. And I'm learning it because I'm one of those people. I've been doing the 12 steps since October 1st of this year um, for the second time because the 12 steps are the you know steps in recovery, 12 steps and 12 traditions on getting sober, basically. And I'm not in recovery for drugs and alcohol, but I am for emotional uh, disorders, I suppose, where I, I really have uh, obsessive thought patterns that can be negative for myself. So anyway, what I'm learning is that when I spent all those years working and volunteering, I was alone. I didn't have a single friend in Florida for almost four years. And at the time, it was depressing. But it's like I couldn't justify being around people because I was in a depression. I didn't want to be around people other than the people that I saw at work every day. I would go home. I would kind of be by myself. I worked out a lot. Um, I, I didn't really get into meditation until I think I was probably 24 or 25 where I started getting into it. Um, Abraham Hicks is one of the big people that I listen to, which sometimes goes against religion, but it, I believe that God created the universe and that the universe has energies. And that is all still God given where I think some people who believe in the Abraham Hicks forget about the God piece to it where I don't. So with that though, what it's all about is how energy is everything and that our thoughts are so powerful. And when you have a dream and then you go tell 20 people about it and those 20 people don't have the same vision or haven't heard the same calling or have that same spiritual connection that you do, it's very difficult to explain that to them. And it also is very depleting, like mentally and physically. And so if I could give anybody advice, it is don't be afraid to be alone because I love the quote. Um, it's, I think it's Booker T. Washington, associate yourself with people of good quality for it's better to be alone than in, in bad company. And I think that that is huge because it's so easy to get caught up in wanting to go to the club tonight or wanting to go to, 
to whatever. I haven't been to a concert. I haven't been to a bar. I haven't been to any of those things in so many, so many years. And that's a personal choice. But the reason I'm not is because those things are not getting me closer to where I want to be financially, mentally, physically. And that's one thing that I had to learn through the process is that if you really want a life that no one has, or that many people in your circle don't have, you have to do things that those people aren't doing. And that requires separation. It requires solitude. It requires surrendering and knowing there's a higher power that's guiding you. I truly believe that. Um, and I think that if you can spend time alone and also work hard and just find your own balance, because I think everyone has their own vices and their own thing, I think it's going to get people a lot further to where they are in the right way. Like you're not going to get there and then be like, man, I've accomplished all these things. Now what? Or now I'm unhappy or, you know, it's, it's not putting your hands in the wrong things. Yeah. I love that. I feel there's so many people in our age group, like you were saying, codependency is huge. I mean, people are just latching onto each other, especially social media. And I, I don't hate social media, but you see it where it's like, okay, I'm going to post this picture that's overly posed. Um, none of no, it's not organic. Um, sometimes they are, but most of the time they're not. <laughs> and, yeah. and I know cause I post them, but you yeah. post this picture you put some caption, you try to put like something really catchy so that people actually read it. And then you kind of internally base your worth based on if people like it or not. Yeah. And I find personally, when I'm actually doing the thing that makes me excited about life the last couple of days, not to toot my own horn, but I haven't even needed social media. Yeah. Like I haven't needed it for motivation. I haven't needed it for um, connection with friends because I'm texting the people I love I'm doing the things I enjoy and that bring me, you know, that keep me motivated. And yeah. I've just noticed, I'm like, dang, I haven't been on social media for like three days. And it's not because I meant to, um, but I think that, I mean, do you have any kind of thoughts on when it comes to social media and solitude? Is there anything you do or don't do? Yeah. I, I mean, I get in my waves where sometimes I'm on it way too much where I'm scrolling. I'm not doing anything. I mean, it's nothing productive, but um, with what I've been doing for myself on social media is I see that, first of all, there's so many problems in the world and I don't focus on problems. I really like to be the uplifter, but there's so many things going on in the world that people don't even know about that, that could raise awareness. So I was at an event recently and um, I, I can't remember what city I was in. I want to say maybe, maybe Boston. And we were driving to one of our locations and there was an entire tent community of just people who are homeless sleeping on the street where they were, they didn't have food. They didn't have shelter. I mean, it was a tent and they were all bundled up with the, with the gloves, with their holes and the fingers. And like, you could just tell that there's a, there's a huge homeless population where we were at and nobody even was really raising awareness for it. And I'm like, we have social media. And instead of us using it to, to raise awareness for homelessness, we're posting selfies with our new butt injections or, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's it's just like real. It's like, and I get if that's what you do, if that's your thing, but like, there's so many other things out there that social media could impact. And I don't think people are using it in that aspect or some people are, I shouldn't say people aren't, but maybe the people I follow aren't. And so I, when I started doing the 12 steps on October 1st, that was one of kind of the commitments I made to myself was that I'm going to use every tool in my tool belt to help people. Every single thing I do each day, I need it to be with the intention to create greater good for somebody out there. So what I've been doing on my social media is um, I've been posting things that raise awareness. So when I'm in a city 
and I know statistics about that city, I'm going to post a picture, yeah, of me to get the attention, but then the caption is going to be something that's bigger than me and bigger than that picture. And so I think for people, if they're going to be on it and they are easily uh, swayed or easily getting their feelings by seeing what they see, they need to unfollow the people who do not lift them higher. Because that was one thing for me. I was following you know, the, the celebrities and the people that were, were out there doing some fun stuff. But it, I found myself almost falling back into depression because it's like, it's just like, oh, they have what you don't have, or they're at a place where you're not. And the truth is you have no idea what that person's going through on the surface. And I have found that a lot of people who are posting those things actually are extremely unhappy on the inside. So I feel like being authentic and kind of raising awareness is really what it should be for. And it should be, those should be the types of people that you're following if you're trying to elevate yourself or follow the Tony Robbins and the Gary V's and the, the Robert Herjavec's and the people out there that are uplifting than to follow the models that are posting about their most recent lip injection. And I'm not discrediting that because I I'm into self-help and Botox and things like that as well, but it's just, there's a, there's a purpose in time for everything. And if you're someone who, who, falls victim into the depression when you see stuff like that, then you need to change who you're following. Yes. And I want to kind of dive in a little bit to your story of kind of, you know, you, you gave us a ton of background. I appreciate that. And um, a couple of things I want to hit on is your dad. I'm a personal fan of, he never like you just explained that, you know, he obviously had money. He didn't stop growing his wealth, but he also didn't come to your rescue. And some people would be offended by that, but knowing your dad, I, I so appreciate that he didn't. So I want to hear kind of that story that you tell when you called him and then also kind of how you went from basically like trying to budget and, and hustling like that to how you are speaking and doing all this. Cause I'm a big, like chronological thinker. So I'm like, wait, how did you go from Google ads to professional speaking? So, um, well, first and foremost, like my dad, he grew up in Pittsburgh. So if you, if anybody knows anything about Pittsburgh, they're really known for the steel mill industry. So everybody there is hardworking. Like you don't live in the Midwest, especially Pennsylvania and Ohio and Indiana, Michigan, Kentucky, West Virginia, unless you are a worker. I mean, there's, there's the, the lazy people in every community, I would assume. But when you're really in the heart of that stuff, you just have a work ethic that many other people do not. And so my dad taught us hard work from the time we were little. I mean, when we used to work on the properties with my dad, sometimes he would give us money for it, or sometimes he would treat us to ice cream, but it was always like, this is just what you're supposed to do. So when I um, bought my first vehicle, my dad refused to buy it for me. He took my savings and went and bought my car for me, but used my money. So I didn't even get to pick out my car. He bought me the safe car that he wanted me to have, but with my money. For college, he wanted my brother and I to get student loans. He could have probably paid for it financially, but it wouldn't have taught us anything. And so he wanted us to establish credit. He wanted us to have that, um, just that path of, of understanding money. And so he made us get student loans. He didn't force us to go to college. I think it was kind of the expectation, but he didn't really care either way because he, I think, is might might have been one of the only people in his family that that did go to college. So there was no pressure on that, but there was pressure to do something in life. So uh, I went to college. I paid for my own student loans. I still am paying on student loans today, uh, but it's because I have a different mentality now. Before it was like this huge thing of debt, but I had been working from the age of fifteen. Uh, up. So at 15 years old, I asked my mom if I could start working at their tanning salon. My dad would pay me, I think like five bucks an hour to clean tanning beds. And then 
Um, I would babysit here and there. And then in college, I worked at Champ Sports and I sold shoes and I worked at our TV station and I was a mystery shopper for McDonald's and I would clean some of the dorm rooms for for some of the athletes. Like I did everything I could. I, I had that work ethic, that hustle mentality that my dad kind of instilled in us. But my dad would never give us anything. He was there as a as a cushion, you know, as a support system, but he was not the one to um to pay for anything unless we had to. And I remember a time being young where I wanted to go to the skating rink and my dad wasn't around and I didn't have any money. And I was afraid to ask my mom. And I don't know why, because my mom was always very giving, but I just didn't like that feeling. And so when I was probably 15, I got this thing in bed in my head that I I won't ever depend on anybody financially, that I don't ever want anyone to have to take care of me or have to, um, I don't want to ask for money from somebody. I want to be able to get what I want when I want it. And it's different if you're if you're married and you you have that connection or you have somebody who is a support system if you fail, which I totally appreciate and want. But I just didn't want to have to ask permission for anything. So that kind of was my my um, thought that I didn't really want to work for somebody either. So I was doing all these different jobs, and it was when I was at the car dealership when my boss sold his dealership that I had the epiphany that my dad was right. Because for years, my dad had been telling my brother and I, you need to take these real estate classes that we sell, that people pay thousands of dollars to to take. You need to take these classes. And all I kept saying was, dad, I don't want to do real estate. I do not want to do real estate. And he said, it's not the real estate you're thinking. My thought was buying a property and running it out and people trashing it. I didn't realize you could wholesale contracts. I didn't realize you could have commercial properties, mobile home parks, land development. Like I didn't realize there was another world, even though I saw it growing up, I didn't understand that side of it. So I called my dad. It was October of 2015, the day that my boss told me he was selling his dealership. And I called my dad crying. And I was like, dad, I don't know what I'm going to do. Tim is selling his dealership and I'm sure I could stay on, but I don't know that I want to work here if he's not here. And he said, well, you know, you could do real estate. And I'm like, dad, I don't know if I want to do real estate. And he's like, well, why don't you come to my class? I'm teaching a class on flipping houses in uh, Orlando. Come to that. And if you like that, then that'll be your indication, you know, that, that you want to do real estate. So that's what I did first is I went to his class, but it was a Friday, Saturday and Sunday. And I missed Friday because I was working at the dealership Saturday morning. I showed up and I was late. And so my dad basically drilled me in front of the class and basically said, there's no excuse for you to be late. There's no excuse for you to miss on Friday. If this was a priority, you would have made it, you would have made a way you would have, you know, sacrificed it. You can make money, you can make excuses, but you can't do both. So in that moment, I was like, wow, my dad is a badass and he doesn't (laughs) care that I'm his daughter. Like he's really just going to put me on the spot. And that is really where I saw, I, I, it kind of hit me that, there's so many people out there who pay thousands of dollars to learn from my dad. And here I was basically pissing on the opportunity, excuse my French, but that's what I was doing. You know, I was like, it wasn't ungrateful. It's just that I didn't really see what everybody else saw. So in that moment, I was like, okay, dad, I'm sorry. I want to do this business. He said, that's when he said, well, if you're going to do it, you're going to go to the free seminar and then you're going to go to a three-day training and then you're going to pick the classes you want. And then you're going to get a mentor. You're not going to just use me for what you want to do because you're not appreciating the opportunity. So in February, I went to a free seminar in Miami. I met uh, a woman named Nicole DeBraccio who was on The Apprentice, uh, I think like season one, one, two or three, one of the beginning seasons and made it as a finalist, but she was eventually fired by Donald Trump. And 
Um, she had known me for years and we had communicated just through like texting and through my dad, but I didn't know that she and my dad had kept a relationship all through the years. And when my dad basically said, kept telling Nicole, Whitney's not ready yet. She's not ready yet. She's not ready yet. But when she's ready, I'll let you know. Well, apparently that day that I went to the free seminar, Nicole texted my dad and said, I think she's ready. And my dad said, I think she is too. So after the free seminar, I went to a three-day training and I met a man named Jason Jones, who is um, from the UK, but he lived in Los Angeles for many years um, and is a real estate investor worldwide. He was my trainer. At that event, he had probably 200 people in his ballroom in Miami, Florida. And um, he actually, I didn't know that the whole team knew me and that they knew that I was Tim's daughter and that I was there to uh, basically be a student. But I, again, showed up late to that event. And so Jason didn't drill me, but Jason had me go to the front of the room and share my experience with all those students. Mind you, this is the first time I'd ever been to a three-day training. So I, I didn't know like that they were selling education. I didn't know that everyone there had, had been learning for three days. I just didn't know the process because all I ever saw was the big conventions that my dad had gone to as a mentor with hundreds of people where I didn't know any different. So I went to the three-day training with my mom and he had both of us go to the front of the room and basically share our story. And so I shared my story and then I give the microphone to my mom and my mom starts crying on the microphone. And she's like, I remember the feeling that all of you have sitting in those seats. And she says, and gosh, darn it, it works. You need to, <laughs> you need to believe in, in what you, you, you uh, want to accomplish in life. And the only person that's going to stand in your way is you. And then my mom's crying and then I start crying. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, all of these people are going to pay my dad thousands of dollars to learn from him. And here I am still oblivious to what is going on. So it was then when I was like, okay, I got to get serious. And so that day I quit my job at the dealership and I surrendered and was like, what's meant to happen will happen. I had um, a tax return that was coming back. That was about $8,000 from that prior year, because I had started a business that year for uh publicity management where I was going to basically do my own like PR work. I was going to, I had an epiphany that I wanted to go back to school for entertainment law. I mean, I have no idea. I just was on this like path and I didn't <laughs> couldn't find myself. And so that day I, I looked at my bank account and I had less than $4,000 in my account. I had a ton of credit card debt. So I had payments that were coming due the next month. I had student loan payments that actually weren't crushing me like the credit cards because the credit cards were such high interest. And so, um, I got my tax return back and I budgeted my life and my dad covered my rent for three months. He did offer to do that because of the situation I was in. But the only reason that he offered to do that was because I was going to pay him back. So it wasn't like I, I got free rent. I had to pay him eventually, but he was just going to cover it for the next three months because he basically put that pressure that you have to do a deal to make this happen. So my dad was helping me with the rent. Um, I didn't have a job. I was living off my tax return and I learned about creative financing and how to use credit cards to leverage money. So at the time, I just had a few credit cards, but I learned about using the, the credit card checks that sometimes come in the mail for 0% offers. And so I started transferring my high interest balances to these 0% cards. So I would have a, a, a credit card payment that might be almost $300. I move it to the 0%, it drops it to below 100. So that helped me get by for several months until I actually did my first deal, which was a wholesale deal. And uh, with wholesaling, you're selling paper. You're not even buying real estate. So I sold a contract basically, and I made $3,000 and that got me by for another two months. And then during those two months, um, what I was able to do is uh, basically start working for legacy education, which is who I speak for now. But because of that event, 
that I went to and where I shared my story, they actually offered me a job because that week a ton of millennials had enrolled in our training. And they said that was the first time they had people who were young who enrolled. And they're like, I think it's a direct correlation to having a young person on the road. So they said, the fact that you did your first deal and that you have the business, you understand the process, your dad's a mentor, he's a trainer. We want to bring you out to be a sales representative on the back of the ballroom. So that happened actually simultaneously with doing my first deal. So I started working for the company in the back of the ballroom. Um, they were paying me a weekly fee to go out with the teams. And I know would get like per diem, my travel would be paid for, my flights would be paid for. And at the time it was a great opportunity. And also I would get commission and I knew nothing about sales. I knew nothing about any of that. So I started traveling with the team and that started paying basically my bills that I was going to have due. And then during that whole time, I was off on a weekend and I walked into the post office and basically met the love of my life who was on a mission to help people in recovery. And two months later, actually that month, that month that we met, we bought the home that we housed 12 people in, in recovery. And so that's kind of how the journey started with real estate and how my relationship with my dad has kind of evolved. Uh, but yeah, he was never willing to give us anything. And still to this day, he's not, but he does see my brother and I a lot more, um, takes us a little more seriously, I think, than he did when we first said that we were interested in real estate. Yeah, that's amazing. And I want to go back to the, so I was raised very similarly. Um, although my parents were more blue collar, they never really, um, they're amazing and they're definitely entrepreneurial mindset, but never yeah. did real estate or anything like that. And I remember, you know, just same thing, never really was pressured to go to college. Um, very, very, very similar. So yeah. what I found for myself, and this is kind of the journey I'm on is like that balance of rest and hard work. Um, because I think there's, a, I guess I just want to talk about like that deeper part of you. That's like, mm -hmm. if I don't work hard, I'm not accepted. Cause I, I think a lot of our identity is wrapped up in like what our parents think about us or like what we were told or what was spoken yes. over us when we were young. And then, you know, and then I'm married to a man who's like, so at peace all the time. And <laughs> he's like, I don't get it. Why don't you just relax? And I'm like, I can't relax. Yes. And so I, that's part of this thing is like talking to people like you who get it, you get the hard work and like, I'm going to literally not sleep. But then now you're like, you know what? my Sundays, I literally sit and do nothing. And that is so like, you don't understand that like makes my heart so happy to Good. talk to someone who gets it. But what, I mean, was that part of it at all with like the Midwestern kind of mindset? Did you have to like break out of that or, or kind of how did you deal with that? I don't know where I've read. I, I read a lot, a lot of um, just like quotes and um, self-help stuff. I can't read novels. I read self-help books. That's all I can read. That's all I can retain. That's all that really resonates with me. But I've read somewhere that you have to fill your cup up and that you can't give unless you are fulfilled too. So there's a book I'm reading right now. It's by a woman named Melanie. And I don't know if you say Beatty or Beatty. I think it's Beatty that they pronounce it, but it's daily meditations for codependency. And um, codependency meaning like you, for me, codependency becomes where I'm actually codependent on other people. And I had to get out of that, but codependency also with that needing to be fulfilled or that I shouldn't say fulfilled the need to please others or the need to be enough or the need to constantly be doing something. All of that stems from my, for me, for, from emotional stuff that I went through as a kid and in my adult life. Well, and I'm not trying to push this back on recovery, but if you ever, this is another book. I just have them sitting here. Cause I do this every morning. It's called um, a woman's way through the 12 steps, which is. Okay. 
Uh, also, it's the 12 steps of recovery, but you don't have to be an addict or an alcoholic to do the 12 steps. And it is tremendously changing my life and letting me understand balance and understand what my issues actually are. Because in the 12 steps, you have to get serious with your defects, your character defects and what kind of holds you back. And for me, one of my things is I have a lot of resentment towards people in my life for certain things that had nothing to do with them. It had to do with me. So like the debt that I acquired, I was resentful towards my ex-boyfriend who I had taken care of for many years, but it wasn't his fault. It was my fault. I, I should have cut it off and not got into the debt. And, and I was resentful, um, you know, towards my dad for the debt. And it's like, it's not my dad's fault. It's my fault. Like it just lets you turn back into the things that you, that have been maybe holding you back. And my need to, to get into debt was because of my need for security and my need for commitment and my need for all those things. So when you can get specific with it and you can put it on paper, it changes your life. And then step three is where you're actually going to surrender and know that there's a higher power that's going to guide you. And I think, especially if your husband is super relaxed, he probably has an amazing relationship with God because that's the only answer. And I mean, I don't know. <laughs> it is like, it comes down to it. If you believe that you're the only one that can solve your problems each day, that's when people get hung up and get overwhelmed and get tired. And it's like, if you just surrender and know that what's meant to happen is going to happen every day, then it really brings you peace that you might not have otherwise. And I think that even gives me more energy. I haven't had a cup of coffee yeah. in four days because I've been doing the 12 steps and I've been actively embedded in it for the past four days with, where usually if I'm not doing something like that, where I'm really engaged in, in my um, spiritual life, then I need coffee. I need Red Bull. I need a bang. I need, like, all this stuff to get me up because I'm so exhausted where I think there's so much energy that comes from just being spiritually connected. Yes. hundred percent. And I could go so many ways with that, but I'm just going to say yes, because I a hundred percent agree. And that's, it, it's the same thing we do. It's like our focus in the morning is prayer. And like we, I mean, whatever, I, I'm just totally cool with whatever you're doing. However you worship God is your thing. Like, yeah. I don't need to tell you how to live your life. It's not my job. Um, but like one thing through, and I think I've told you a little bit about it, but, and I've spoken about it on the podcast here a little, but Cam's had a lot of like severe health issues, like life-threatening kind of stuff. And we found, I mean, dude, we would literally, like we had churches that would come pray in the emergency room for, I'm telling you, hours. And half the time, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with praying, you obviously need to pray and like yell at the devil and be like, heck no, not not this guy, not now. Yeah. But sometimes it would um, like irritate things to the point of like, it would just spiritually like hype everything up. We found one of the things that we can do that like, just like, it like just brought peace was worship. And like, literally like singing hymns in the middle of an ER and like, not like loud and obnoxiously just under our breath, but like people would want to like go crazy. Like I have a lot of mamas in my, and dads in my life that are like, dude, we're going to pray until we can't talk anymore. Like our voices give out. And I'm yeah. like, that's cool. But I think I'm, what I'm bringing that up for is because it comes from that place of identity of like, I've got to like war. Cause it, if I don't like bring it, nothing's going to happen. And what we found with worship is like, if I just sing about how good God is and that he's actually present, it like there's, it doesn't give the other like negative stuff, any energy, yeah. no, yeah. like the enemy, whatever you want to call him, he has no place. And right. so that's, that's like one thing that we just always go back to. And even now, like, you know, financial stuff and, 
in the middle of, you know, a couple of real estate projects. And we're like, we don't know how the heck we're going to get this done, but we know what's going to happen. We literally are just like, you know what, let's just like sing and like make up our own song or like whatever. And people are like, you're freaking nuts. And I'm like, yeah, probably, (laughs) you know, but, and I, and I love what you're talking about with the 12 steps. Cause we're so often like, Oh, I'm this way because blah, blah, blah. And I'm all about therapy and go do what you got to do. But I've heard a lot of stories where, um, and I really shouldn't even be saying this because it's going to just make people upset. But a lot of times they want to tell you like, oh, well, maybe it's because this person in your life said this or, you know, and then it just makes you like victimize yourself and be like, well, it's their fault. And what you're saying is, no, it's my fault. Like, sure, maybe they manipulated me into taking Mm -hmm. care of them. And maybe that's why the debt came, but I had a choice and my choice was to help them. And and maybe it was from a good place in my heart. Maybe I really wasn't like just terribly wrong, but now I see it was a me thing. And so I think that's a huge, like whatever you have to do to, to get to that place in your life where you're honest with yourself is huge. But anyway, I could go on on a, I'm on a soapbox, (laughs) but, and I want to talk, um, we're at 54 minutes. How are you doing? How are you feeling? Okay. I mean, I'm okay. hanging out. I know I talk a lot. I just didn't know. No, I love it. Need and all that I else. mean, you're professional at it. So you might as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I want to talk a little bit. We covered a lot of what, what you've talked about, about recovery and like just struggles and all that stuff. And I love it. And I also love, um, we've touched on it slightly, but the, the creative financing and just like what you were talking about with credit cards and all this stuff. I know probably a lot of the people I, um, like my niche, if you will, are Dave Ramsey and Susie Orman and, you know, credit cards are the devil, cut them up. So when you were talking about that, they're probably like, yeah, credit card debt sucks. But (laughs) tell us a little bit more about how, like you said, you, you did the balance transfer transfer. And I know just recently Cam and I actually did like a credit card refinancing, um, But this is part of what you do is you get on the phone with people before they come to a three-day event and um, the three-day events on real estate and all that. But a lot of times people have questions about finances and you talk to people like on a regular basis about, okay, yeah, you can do this. So if, you know, say someone was in your shoes where they're just overwhelmed with credit card debt, but they want to do a deal with real estate, um, tell us a little bit more about the wholesaling and just a little bit more about like credit cards and how, how you use those. So um, with credit cards, everybody, I shouldn't say everybody, but 95% of our population thinks that they're bad. And I get it, but it's not the credit card that's bad. It's typically the mindset behind using the credit card that is bad. And that's not to insult anybody. It's just facts. We're not taught about credit cards in school. We're not taught about them unless your parents know or people in your circle know. Most people don't know that they're actually tools and that you can use them to buy whatever you want. So with, with credit cards, what we teach people to do is use them as a tool to get you an asset that's going to create income. So yeah, don't go take your credit card and go buy a vehicle unless you're gonna rent that vehicle out. Don't go take your credit card and go uh, buy a Louis Vuitton bag unless you're gonna sell that Louis Vuitton bag. Like unless you're gonna make it an asset for yourself, don't use a credit card to just get into consumer debt. With that, um, there's a lot of strategic things you can do to get your limits up, to negotiate your credit cards. That's one thing I think people, a lot of people don't know is that credit cards, almost everything on them is negotiable. So interest rates, fees, limits, all of that's negotiable. If people get hung up on their credit scores, 
I understand that having an 800 credit score might be really fulfilling, but if you have an 800 credit score and you're doing nothing with that, what good is that 800 credit score? It's like, go use that to go buy an asset or go use your credit score to, to go get something that's going to generate you an income of some sort. Um, with that as well, if you never have credit cards, to me, credit cards are recyclable money. Once you use them, you can use them again and again and again and again. If you have $100,000 in cash or $100,000 in a credit card and you go use that $100,000 in cash, you're done. Use the credit card. You still have the $100,000 credit line. So once it's paid, then you can go use it again, where with that hundred, how long is it going to take you to save another $100,000? So it's just a mindset shift that doesn't always work for everyone. But if someone's in a position right now where they have a ton of credit card debt and they um, they want to do the want to invest in real estate, um, a couple things on the credit card side would be to call your credit card companies and see what you can do. Ask about you know what you can negotiate. Tell them that you're you're experiencing hardships and you you don't want to miss a payment on your credit cards. You want to do something. You want to make it right, but you also got to survive. So is there anything they can do to help you? Can they lower your interest rate? Can they increase your limit to to help with your credit score so that maybe you get some of those offers in the mail to transfer balances? That would be one thing on that side. When it comes to real estate, you can literally do every deal, every strategy in real estate with none of your own money and sometimes none of your own credit. The question is, how much do you know and how willing are you to learn it? Because there, when I have people come into a ballroom and they say there's no way you can do it without money or credit. Well, there's a quote that says whether you think you can or you think you can't, either way, you're right. And it's true because there are deals that I have structured with none of my own money and credit that that could have gone through and some have gone through because I had the balls to ask, but also because I also understand the strategy. So if you don't know it, yeah, it's going to be challenging to to believe in it, but you don't know what you don't know. When it comes to investing, if people want to do what's called wholesaling, that's basically where they're going to sell contracts. They're going to make offers on properties and they're going to sell the right to buy that property to somebody else. That strategy is a good strategy to get into with no money and no credit. However, it is challenging to do if you don't have knowledge because you have to have a database. There's a lot of legalities behind it and it is a full-time job. It's not easy. It takes time. It'll take time to build it. What I would say for people is every property that you find, ask if they'll do owner financing right out the gate, 100% owner financing, because then the owner is being the bank. And that's one thing my dad did teach me. And that's something that I always go for is owner financing, where basically the owner will hold the mortgage, their hands off when it comes to maintenance and repairs and all of that. You do own the property, but instead of paying the bank, you're paying the owner who's willing to hold the note. And I think that's probably the best way to go if you're in a position where you don't have any money but you also need to have the knowledge to be able to, um, you know, back that up. Because if, if you get a property that has a $2,000 a month payment that you're owner financing and you don't know how to put a tenant in it, or you don't know how to get creative to make money on it, then you're going to be in a, a bad position. Right. And I'm going to go a little selfish here and ask you sure. about a property that we're doing <laughs> sure. because, um, I, so it's a duplex here in, uh, in Clarksville, Tennessee. Nice. Um, kind of a side note for people who are like, well, I don't even know where to look. Um, I mean, try to stay off the MLS. I didn't find this one on the MLS. I found it on Facebook Marketplace. It was a, go. it's a, um, actually it was a guy who is, he's like a higher level investor. He's like five years or 10 years ahead of where I am. And basically this is the funny part. I'm, I said, Hey, give me a call. I'd love to talk to you about this property. I'm not, fa I'm not messaging him like through text, right? He calls me, we start talking and I can tell he's kind of like, there's a connection. Mm -hmm. and he's like, man, you're really good on the phone. You know, what do you do? 
And I'd be like, well, I've done a lot of cold calling. So, <laughs> and he's like, well, yeah, you seem awesome and blah, blah, blah. And, and I asked for owner financing though. He had told me, Hey, I have like seven cash offers on this deal. It's a great, you know, it's going to cash flow like crazy. It's a duplex. It's, you know, he had it listed for like 60,000, which is definitely below market. And I said, you know, I know this is probably stupid to even ask you, but would you consider to, to hold the note? Would you consider to finance it? Because I could tell he didn't need the money for it. Yeah. And he goes, well, you know, honestly, I would normally say no, but I've been reading on owner financing and you're right. That's where the money's at. I can make some interest on this. It gives you a little room and then it saves me the taxes. So yeah. thank God he already had the reference. I didn't have to teach him about yeah. owner financing. Long story short, I make him offers. He basically says no. And then a day later after talking to his wife, he says, you know what? We want someday for someone to owner finance us a huge apartment complex. And I believe what you give is what you get. Yeah, so sure. I want it. So, right. Right. I'm like, this is the Lord. Um, mind you all week. I have been like trying to rest. This is my first week off the road, you know? And so I've been trying to rest and I'm like, I don't know how this is going to work. I don't know what we're going to do next. And literally this, I very, very not, not intentionally happened on this property. Um, so what do you think would be the best? So it's a 24 month loan. Okay. Um, it is basically 7% interest for 24 months and then a balloon payment at the end. The idea is refinance it, right? Get, you know, basically there, there, there's no prepayment penalty. So I can cash out, refinance that, um, in six months or if it's 18 months, I just knew 24 months would be long enough. Um, but in the meantime, I'm trying to be as strategic as possible. Um, I know Home Depot has a card. Um, actually, Ryan was telling me about it. Yeah. Um, our friend Ryan, shout out to him. He's a ball, baller. Um, but um, he was saying Home Depot has a project loan where you can apply for it. And um, it's 0%. You don't have to pay anything on it. And it's 0% interest for the six, first six months. So, um, but then you still have, you know, if I have to pay an electrician or something like that, the idea was to use credit cards. I mean, do you have any other tips, tricks? Um, I would probably use credit cards. I mean, if it was my personal situation, just because I like credit cards because of the points and the miles and everything that you can get. So I would get a, a credit card that's going to give you the big bonuses or give you cash back so that when you are doing that project, if you could get cash back, that cash back could service the debt of all the, the stuff that you have, because right. if you're spending, you know, I don't know how much rehab you have to put into it and I don't know what it will do to the value, but if you improve it and then it increases the value of it, then you can borrow against it as well, because now you have the, you know, it's worth more than what you're actually paying on it. Um, and then it, if you're putting a tenant in it, then there you go. You get the cash flow on that as well. So I would use credit cards personally, or I would, the Home Depot thing would be something I would probably consider because if you use anything else, you're going to be end up paying a lot of interest. So you want right. to use cheapest money that gives you the largest amount. And I think credit cards and that Home Depot loan would probably be the lowest interest and the, um, the most flexible. If you were to do hard money and you got terms and you got all this stuff, and a lot of times they're not just going to give you money for the the uh, rehab, they want the asset. And then if you, you could do peer to peer lending, that would probably be the only other thing, things like prosper, best egg lending club, uh, because sometimes they'll give you really high limits and you might pay interest, but you're talking a little bit of interest on a huge amount where credit cards might not give you that huge amount, but you do have no interest. So it's, right. it's whatever gives you the most amount with the least amount of payment and look at the payment. Don't look so much as the interest, because if the payment on the 6% interest on a $300,000 loan is cheaper than the, then the, you know, whatever, 
0% on a $10,000 and you're getting more for your money, then it makes sense to do that. Plus the idea is to have the tenant service the debt. So as long as you have tenants in there that are covering everything, then you don't have to come out of pocket and your, okay. your, whatever you take can be back up to service everything else as well. Right. And, and I don't mean to like go into this personal deal to, to no. like, to make whatever. But I just knew that like, people could see how smart you were if I started asking yeah, these questions. <laughs> yeah, but, different. The numbers, I would say run the numbers too and see what's right. going to be cheapest and, and plug it into that chaotic spreadsheet that my dad gives everybody. Oh my gosh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it's perfect because this one, um, I think the reason they didn't move forward with it is um, it's a solid property. We're getting at a decent price. And the one side of it is pretty much almost done besides flooring, got to put the cabinets back on. The bathroom is probably the most horrendous of the whole thing, but it's not that bad. Um, yeah. Whereas the other one had a fire in it. So it looks horrible, but really there was no serious damage done. So, um, so we're thinking, okay, start on the first one. That'll be done in a couple weeks. You know, any contractor can get that done, start renting that. And then, you know, that way we have, it's like 650 a month in rent. So after yep. expenses, it's still cash flowing based on what we're paying these guys. It'll at least cover the costs and the, the credit cards. And then while we're doing the other side and then pretty soon give it another month and it'll be cash flowing somewhere around like 12 to, well, it won't cash flow 12,000 yeah. or 1200, but you get what I'm saying. And um, you, you're owner financing it. So you yeah. didn't have to get your credit checked. You didn't have to go get a mortgage. It's not on, you know, that's the beautiful thing about it is now when your credit and you, you start using that debt to service other things that you have, you can still use your credit to go do more. So right. you didn't even leverage that. You know, that's what's right. valuable about it too. And the one other thing I want to add, um, just because you were talking about owner financing, the best part about it is, you know, he initially said like, well, it's a little riskier for me to hold the note. And my response was, it's actually not because if I turn out to be a joke, you have first position on the mortgage, meaning you can come back and get the property and you already can see that you have seven cash offers. You could have this thing gone in a week and you've still made interest on me yeah. in the, in the interim. And I've probably repaired the property since I bought it. So, so, and I offered him 8,000 more than what anyone was offering him cash. So, yeah, financing so it. you yeah. can show them and you can show them, Hey, I'm offering you, you know, 68 grand, but really by the time I pay this loan off, if I hold it for, if you hold it for two years, you're going to make, I can't remember what the interest was, but it was like, no. it was thousands. And yeah. so really it being the, I mean, the banks have the biggest buildings. We always talk about that. And it's because they're taking people's money and leveraging it and, yeah. and they're the ones that are making money. So, yeah. so if you teach someone else how to be the bank, it's a win-win. So yeah. anyway, I just, yeah. I wanted to, to talk to you a little bit about nope, that. I but that sounds good. Yeah. But, um, I don't know. Is there anything else? Oh, there's a book. You're writing a book, dude. I had no I idea. Am writing a Tell book. So I've been in, I've had writer's block for a while, so it's kind of at a standstill again, but, um, yeah, it's, it's really, I, I'm, I wrote the book originally. Uh, I work with a lot of nonprofits, but one nonprofit that I work with that's really close to my heart is a nonprofit in Florida called place of hope. And what they do is they house children who are aging out of foster care and, um, the reason for that is because if you're in foster care in the United States and you're 18 years old and you've not yet been adopted, you can age out of the system. And if you have little brothers and sisters who are still in foster care, a lot of times you can become separated from them or you'll take responsibility for them. Well, what Place of Hope does is they'll take all those kids in and a lot of the, the people in their facility are young women and um, young girls. So we're talking like age two up to like 18. And there's men there too, but it's mostly women. That's who I deal with is young girls, women who are kind of like at this, this age in their life where like, they don't know 
themselves. They don't know what they want out of life. Some of them are graduating high school. Some are trying to get their driver's license. So I was writing this book really to um, relate to them. That was my first goal. And then I started meeting a lot of women in recovery, drug and alcohol recovery, who I think could use um, some uplifting stuff too. But then I read the 12 steps. I'm still reading them now. And I'm thinking that my book's going to be more based on the 12 steps, but for what people call normies, meaning people who don't have an addiction problem or drug problem, but might have other emotional trauma or um, experience depression and anxiety. So it's a self-help book to be able to kind of, you know, be your own motivation and to um, achieve something in life, whatever it is that you want, whatever that something is for you. It's just been, it's been in the process for almost four years and I get anxiety sometimes thinking about it because it's not anywhere where I want it to be. And I had it finished and then I started reading the 12 steps. And now I'm like, uh-uh, I gotta, I gotta change it. It's not <laughs> <laughs> so when were you saying the, uh, the ideal like launch date or to kind of have it ready? I don't know. I mean, I was hoping to have it finished by the end of this month until like actually be published, but I really don't know. And I don't know, I should put a deadline on it just for the sake of um, achieving it. But sometimes when I put deadlines, it puts pressure on me and that creates more anxiety for myself. But I would hope by the end of the year that I have it done, maybe sooner, might be later. Um, but my my other challenge with it is originally I was creating it on like CreateSpace, which is like your own self-publishing um, software website that you could do it on but they've changed a lot of their stuff there so now I'm, I'm debating if I want to just go to like a real publisher and take on the expense of having somebody help me really get it out there and do it the right way but since then I've met a lot of people uh in the industry that might be able to help me in a bigger way um that that I might not need to contact a publisher I might actually have somebody in my circle who would just be willing to help me publish it who has the credibility and ability to do that so I don't know but the goal I would say is by 2020 to have it out there for people to actually buy it, it. And when I do, it'll be on Kindle and on, um, I'm hoping audible too. I actually want to record it and have the voice cause I'm a speaker. So I feel like it would be, it would actually be better to hear me right. saying it than someone trying to read it themselves since I do write like I talk. But, um, yeah, by the end of 2020 is my goal or the, by, by 2020 is my goal. Okay. That's perfect. And I love 2020. That's like my thing right now is I have military t time on my phone. So every day at 2020, I like have a thing and I always pray. I'm like, God, give us vision, give us like clarity, give us 2020 for 2020. Like that's, and it's really cool. Like that you're, there's so many things that are happening um, with a lot of people in my life, but you specifically, there's a lot of things happening as we're going into a new year and I'm, I'm just excited to hear it. Yeah. And I think I just want to kind of, um, I just want to kind of end with, I think, I don't know if you're cool with it, but if you want to pray for us, I want you to pray. And I also want you to, before you do that, I want to hear what your goals are, because I think it's, it's funny because you, as driven as you are, you would expect you to be like, oh, I want to do this. But, um, but I actually love your, your goals. And that's why I was just reading kind of what you wrote on that thing. And I love it. So tell us a little bit about that. And then if you want to just kind of like pray for all of us who are listening and, also, just plug um, plug all the things you want to promote because sure. shamelessly you're allowed to. Yeah. So I think um, be, I'm 29 years old and I accomplished quite a bit by the age of 25. So, um, I mean, I worked with Access Hollywood in Los Angeles. I've interviewed probably more than 300 celebrities. Uh, I dated a professional athlete. Like I just have I've been very blessed to have achieved a lot of things that a lot of people only dream of. Not that people 
dream of dating a professional athlete. I just think <laughs> that it put me in a circle of people by doing that, that I, I didn't know that it would. And so um, I've accomplished quite a bit at a young age. And with that, I think you start to appreciate the simplicity in life. So even though I'm only 29, it's like my soul's like 75 because I just, I don't know, I, I've always been that way. So for me, like my goals are really to, to have a family and to be married and to be in a committed relationship and a secure environment where there is security and emotional security and stability, not where you have to look over your shoulder or worry or feel like you're not enough. Not that that's anyone's responsibility, but I think when you're with the right partner and in the right place, all of that kind of um, just will, will uh, I don't know, be, bring a peace to your life. And that's what I want is to be at that point where... I don't have to be in the grind mode all the time. I want to have children and I want to have children before my parents are, are gone. I want them to be able to see them and be a part of that. And my brother has two kids. I want them to, you know, be cousins with them and, and experience childhood like we did. And I, I want all of that. So I think that's really my only goal in life. I, I, I know the company I work for, we're going through a lot of changes right now. And it's probably what I'm going to end up praying for. But with that, it, there's a lot of different things that are, that are going on on in life and that are happening in the, the brink of things. And with that simplicity is important to me. So my goal is that after this transition of everything that's happening, that my life becomes a little simpler and that I kind of feel like I'm not drowning all the time because financially, sometimes it gets like that, especially when you're leveraging money and you're, you're in debt and you're using it to create wealth. It's totally different than if you're just going and buying something and you're waiting for your next paycheck to pay it off. We're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt that could potentially be, you know, in the, in the, the mix of things there, there has to get to a point where, um, you don't feel like you're constantly treading water in every aspect of your life. Cause I've been in limbo for almost a year now in my, in my life, I've gone from being a rep in the back of the room to a manager, to a speaker, to having a relationship with the person I want to be with forever, to not to dating somebody else who was a complete out of the box person I would never probably ever be with. And that relationship ended. And then the one I do love is actually coming back into my life. So it's like all these crazy things are happening to where there is no stability right now. Everything in my life is in limbo. So my goal is to get to a point where I feel at peace with all of those, you know, health, wealth, um, relationships, spiritual. I think spirituality is the only thing I do feel at peace at right now. And I want all the other circles in my life to kind of come back to that, that piece as well. So that's my only real goal. That's awesome. And that's hilarious. We've been seeing, um, we've been seeing 11, 11 everywhere. And apparently that's like yeah. a thing where, um, it's like a faith thing, but it's also like calling things that were in disorder into yeah. alignment. Um, and so literally like every time I look at the clock or at like some, anything that's a number, it's 11, 11. And so that's why we're launching, um, the podcast by time you guys are listening to this, it's already launched. But the reason we're launching it 11, 11 is because same thing, everything else in life is completely in limbo, but at the same time, that's because you have to be completely dependent on God because right. you have no other option. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I agree. And, and talk to us about like, where can we come see you speak and how do we hear more about what you're up to? Yes. Yeah, so I'm on social media. Uh, my Instagram is Wit Chafin. It's W-H-I-T-C as in Charlie, H-A-F as in Frank, F as in Frank, I-N as in Nancy. So Whitney Chafin's my name. But on Instagram, I'm at Whit Chafin. Um, Facebook is Whitney Chafin as well. Uh, WhitneyChafin.com is my website. It's really, it's kind of outdated. And that's just because I have people working on it right now. So it's outdated publicly, like published wise, but there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes in terms of content. 
but um, that is a way to kind of stay up on just like what I'm doing. But in terms of events, if they follow me on Instagram, I usually can um, can promote where I'm going to be. But I work for Legacy Education. So LegacyEducation.com would tell you all the cities that we're going to be in nationwide. This week, I'm in Orlando, Florida, but I don't know when this is actually published. So um, it may be late by the time that people, people get this. But uh, Orlando this week, and then I will be off for the week of Halloween because um, that it, Halloween is a very important day for the love of my life. He's five years sober this year. I probably won't see him that day because we're not physically together, but <laughs> it is an important day. So I don't work that week. And um, the week after that, I'll be in Cincinnati, Ohio. And that's all I have uh, scheduled right now. So Cincinnati is the second or first week of November. Um, and that's it right now. If they follow me on Instagram or Legacy Education, they'll be able to see the dates of the upcoming events. And I'm usually at one of the, the events that they have in one of the cities. Okay, perfect. And then, yeah, do you want to just sign off? And and I just want to say thank you so much. You're you're such an incredible person. I'm so glad that we're friends, I, seriously. Me too. And I feel the same about you. I thank you. And, um, yeah, no, I'll pray. And, um, yeah, I I uh, I appreciate you interviewing me too because everything's just in limbo right now. And it's cool to kind of talk to someone who's also experiencing the limbo, but also to kind of like I feel like talking about things just get definitely gives you more peace too. Mm-hmm you feel it or if you talk by yourself it does one thing but talking to somebody else helps as well right and I think in my head I'm like there's just anxiety but when I actually say what's going on it's like wait no it isn't as bad as what it is in my head so yeah yeah, it's it's cool there's really no one else in my life right now that is going through all like a very similar um a very similar thing so yeah it's it's awesome I love talking with you anyway but right now specifically (laughs) Awesome. But yeah, go ahead. So we can pray. I'm going to close my eyes. Anyone who's listening, close your eyes as well, unless you're driving, obviously. You don't want to do that. So God, I want to thank you for this opportunity to talk to Brooke and to uh, broadcast this message out to everyone who's listening, anyone who needs a little bit of help or a little bit of hope to just know that there's always a, a higher power that's guiding us and leading us where we need to go. I want to thank you for the opportunities that lie before us each day that allow for us to be better versions of ourselves and to really maximize what it is that you want us to do in this life. I hope that uh, with this prayer, you bless everyone who's listening and everyone who who receives the message on the other end of those who's, who are listening as well. Anyone who communicates what they've learned from this podcast and from Brooke and from my message today, I hope that it, it impacts their lives for the better. So I thank you. And and I, uh, I hope everyone who's listening sees that um, there's always a higher power that's guiding us. Amen. Thank you for listening. Please feel free to share this episode and come follow me at Brooke A. Payne. That's Brooke with an E, A-P-A-Y-N-E on Instagram and Facebook. And all of our resources are in my bio. Thank you guys so much. It means so much to me that you're listening.